In a world dominated by film geeks, there's only one light at the end of the tunnel, and that is the film file. Welcome, one and all, to the film file. I'm your film geek host, Lee Ford. And I'm that other one on the other chair, Andy Eakin. But no less a film geek, if not in some ways more so, and I mean that with all the love <laughs> that is meant by that, that statement. Hello, Andy, I, I, how are I, you? I know you meant nothing harmful. Me, so. <laughs> I, I wouldn't dare. I'm, I'm film geek and proud. I'm I'm good. I mean, I, I, like you, I mean, we just heard you cough there. Um, and that one will stay in the edit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, because you're going to be editing a lot out in this particular episode, I can tell you. I've got, I've got a bit of a tickle going on at the back of my throat as well. It's, uh, it's something going round, but thankfully it's not the vid. As last week, those who listened knew that I was uh, feeling a bit poorly. It oh, you were, yeah. I'd forgotten to ask how you were. It I, I, it was just like a passing phase, but I'm waking up every morning having like a couple of hours where I just struggle to do anything except for cough and splutter. Uh, well, there I is a super cold now. going around. Did you know? Super cold. Yes, I know. And it's not, it's, it doesn't uh, nip into a phone booth and change in any way. It's uh, yeah, it's apparently some kind of cold because we missed a year uh, of getting, of getting colds and sniffles and all that kind of thing. Uh, and so it's come back uh, a particular, particularly nasty strain of cold because that's not the only thing in the world right now that you have to worry about well you have to worry about the omnicron by I mean, what a name what a name for a variant I mean, is it, like... has it been developed by michael Crichton? that name because it <laughs> just sounds like the andromeda strain if they'd have called it andromeda i would have uh, i would have been in geek heaven but also terrified it sounds like the next evolution of Transformers. It's it like does, Megatron, it? Galvatron, Omnicron. <laughs> I know. I mean, yeah, you're always hoping uh, that somewhere that, that people who, who do this kind of scientific stuff for, for uh, a living are also big geeks as well. And they're going, what can we call it? That, that like It's like a nod to the fans, an Easter egg. We'll call it Omnicron because it just does sound like the Omnicron or the Omnicron <laughs> virus, or Return of the Omnicron. I mean, the, it could, you can run and roll on this. could be a massive franchise for generations. Yeah, it probably will uh, be. Yeah, it, it's never going away. It's just how we deal with it going forward. So, yeah, so we're going to be into a situation where uh, masks are compulsory on public transport again. Oh, and, what a shame uh, that it's shots. not been, Yeah, well, he says yeah, politically. Well, you know, it, when, when they removed the mask mandate... It was interesting over that first few weeks traveling on the bus that the first couple of days, people were still all wearing masks and bit by bit, people have stopped. And now it's basically, I get onto a bus and I'm looking around and I'm like, I'm the only person wearing a mask. You know why, Andy? Because you respect the mask and you know that only heroes wear masks. Yeah. Well, I respect other people because, you know, I know that I'm feeling a bit poorly. I wear a mask. I'm not going to be coughing and splutting and sharing my diseases with you people out there. It's not about stopping yourself from getting it. It's about stopping other people from getting what you've got. Do you know why in, in Japan and, and in Asian countries, people wear masks? And it's, 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 it's much simpler than one would imagine. The reason that people wear masks is, is when they've got colds, they aren't going to spread it to other people. It's completely, yeah. completely a polite thing to do. Not, yeah. not a case of protecting themselves, protecting other people. Well, uh, this, but uh, yeah, to take to divert my mind from the struggles of the ever-present COVID virus affecting communities. Um, this week, I've been uh, entertaining myself on TikTok. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Oh, I see what I, you mean. I've been, <laughs> yeah, I've been TikToking. Yes, some people know that I've had a TikTok account for a good few. I've had it since before it was TikTok back when it was Musically. 
I'm a, I'm an old schooler, but I've never really done much with it. But over the past week, I suddenly decided, you know what? Each week on this show, we review like three new films, maybe four. But I watch up to 10 or 12 films a week. So I'm going to start doing one-minute movie reviews on TikTok Fantastic. where I just talk. And I t- I'm going to try to do them as soon as I've watched the film, do it as a quick reaction one. So it's not like something that I've had time to consider. Nothing scripted. It's just me talking to the camera. And What do you mean nothing I've scripted? Been... I've done I've done 90 <laughs> odd of these shows, nothing scripted. <laughs> well, you, you know, you know, not having time to piece together your thoughts, not having time to think about what you want to say, that kind of aspect. Not necessarily scripted, but just like considered. Um, it's just a, an emotional gut reaction response. And my first four have gone out and I've had quite a good response to them so far. Uh, best responses that I've had from um, any of my TikToks to date. So I think I've found like a little little corner of the market to extend the brand. And it is all under our film file brand, isn't it? Yep. it's. Uh, I've, I've changed my TikTok profile to actually be uh, film file UK. So it's easy to find. The handy thing is that you can feed that into Instagram stories and also into Facebook stories and other social media things. So it's a way to like use one project to span out across the things. So if anyone's interested in knowing what my thoughts are on other films other than what we talk about on the show, by all means, follow me on TikTok or follow us on Instagram, which we'll give the details later in the show. And uh, you'll be able to see me talking nonsense about lots of things. <laughs> so when you said for next year, shall we dominate the world? You were quite literal. Oh, yeah. I'm, I have full intentions to dominate the world and take over and uh, rule the planet in, uh, in, a, in a North Korea kind of way. Maybe not oh, in a North Korea kind of way. Um, I mean, more like a situation... North Yorkshire kind of way. North Yorkshire kind of way. It's it's not like we're not going to execute people for smuggling episodes of Emmerdale into the country. I mean, <laughs> and if you don't get the reference on that, I don't know whether you caught the news that um, someone smuggled from South Korea into North Korea a Squid Game series. Oh, really? And we're, it, and we're selling it to teenagers, and the person who smuggled it in is now going to get be executed. Oh my goodness. As, as, and who said it's not a dangerous job being a film reviewer? And everyone who bought it is also going to be facing imprisonment. Wow. 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 I mean, to be fair to North Korea, there's not been any deaths through Which is COVID. something you never normally hear in a sentence. <laughs> there's been no deaths through COVID over there. There's been deaths through people saying that they had COVID. I mean, you know, pe- people were executed for trying to say that it's going to an outbreak over there. But no one's actually died of COVID in that country. So uh, just loads of dead bodies with no, no reasons. <laughs> Any of our listeners in North Korea, I hope you manage hello. to smuggle this in without any problems. <laughs> hello. You can say hello to Utah while you're at it. <laughs> the good thing about talking about North Korea is you know they're never going to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, so you think. <laughs> so you think, sir. This is where we don't do a show next week because I've been assassinated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he was wearing a mask. <laughs> He had a mask on all along. <laughs> so did I tell you that I, I know I did it as a neat thing, uh, was listening to Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a, as a, an audible book. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Uh, well, I've nearly, nearly finished it. And it's been a, it's been a bit of a joy uh, driving into work. I've got quite a long drive in in the daytime. Uh, and so um, I've really got into audible uh, at the moment. And uh, yeah. there's some fantastically beautifully crafted um uh, crafted uh, talking books on there anyway just to point out that i've nearly finished the book and boy is it dreadful (laughs) (laughs) 
boy is really poor. I, I mean, the guy can write dialogue and he can write movies, but he, he's not a novelist. I know novelists, sir, and you are not a novelist. <laughs> it really is, really is so badly, badly written. Uh, and, it, and the interesting thing is it deviates quite a lot from, from the film, so you can enjoy it in its own right. So if you are going to go and read yeah. it, you can you can see the film and watch it. It's almost like an alternate take on what happened in, in, in the movie. You know, the... Uh, classic ending of the movie happens within the first couple of chapters and um, is almost a throwaway. So you, you can you can read it. It's an intriguing book, but it is it is uh, full of film lists and and just it's so badly written. It really is. I, I'm I like I'm stopping and giggling to some of the uh, horrendous <laughs> lines in it. But uh, yes, enjoy it at your at your will, folks. I did recommend it, and I and I still do recommend it. But it's. Uh, I, you know, if anybody is, uh, has picked up on our neat thing for it, let me know because yeah. I'd like to know your thoughts on it as well. I don't know if it's just me. I do like um, th- a lot. I mean, I've been subscribing to Audible for a good few years now, um, and I've picked up some right good books. Uh, it, like I've said recently, I've, I've re-listened to me uh, first two June books on okay. there. Um, they're really good productions, fantastic voice cast across the board on it. But I also like the the little audible specials that they do, the the podcast elements that they do. Like there's there's the from the host house uh, okay. with Alan Partridge, which if you're a fan of Alan Partridge, definitely listen to the from the host house po- podcast that he put on Audible. Absolutely brilliant, hilarious. I've still not got around to Sandman, which will be my uh, my next big thing because uh, I've heard just very very wonderful things mm-hmm. about it. In lieu of the Netflix series starting sometime next year. Yep, yep, eventually. But talking of next year let's worry about that in a few weeks time and think about what's on this week's show well of course we've got the news we have got reviews which include this week a boy called christmas which is going to be very surprising to a lot of people who are familiar with (laughs) one of andy's rants Uh, king richard and Encanto. We are going to be doing a deep dive into a film that I may or may not have mentioned on the air. I I, I forget. <laughs> and that is The Babadook. And we'll also be reviewing, and it landed on Disney Plus this week with two episodes, Hawkeye. But before any of that, Andy has been going deep, deep, I tell you, into all the gossip, all the info to bring you the segment that we lovingly call The News. <laughs> So, as ever, we'll start with the box office. Now, I have done my own little bit of research, and I have noticed that in the States, uh, as we've just gone through Thanksgiving, that for Thanksgiving weekend, the box office has been, well, low. And I'm assuming that is still to do with COVID. At the box office, normally it's a big time for the box office with lots of family films and everyone wants to go out and treat themselves. But this year, the box office naturally was a bit lower than what it normally is. We're living in a post-COVID times and everything is slightly different. But Encanto still took the top spot. The new film by Disney, which I'll be talking about later in the show, hit the top spot with 40.3 million over this weekend. Lower than usual for the holiday weekend, but still a reasonable figure in these times. The film has taken 71 million worldwide so far and on a 120 million budget, it's well and truly going to be going into profit. Second place was held by Ghostbusters Afterlife, which scored an additional 24.5 million to add on to its current total. House of Gucci landed into third place. Ridley Scott's film taking 21.8 million, 
It took 3.2 million in the UK this weekend, drawing in quite a strong audience, and is currently sitting at 36 million worldwide total on a budget of 72 million. Eternals kept hold of fourth place in the US, taking it to 150 million total in the US, and this worldwide box office is now sat at 368 million. In the UK, the film is now up to 17.2 million. Strong, but not in the high flyers of the Marvel films. Resident Evil, welcome to Raccoon City. The new attempted reboot of the film franchise based on the popular game series got off to a very slow start with only 8.8 million. It's not released internationally yet, but it's looking very unlikely that this is going to set any box offices alight, and it's extremely unlikely that we'll be seeing a franchise spinning from this. And finally, No Time to Die is still scraping some money at the box office, even though it's available for home rental, and worldwide is comfortably sat in the third place for the year, with over $750 million box office. MGM are reportedly pleased with the results, even though the industry analysts suggest it hasn't made profit due to the additional costs that the delays have caused. But with the home rental release should hopefully manage to recover some of the lost costs. We always kind of suspected that uh, with reviews and, and, and sort of the way that Eternals has been kicked around the park a little bit, it was, it was going to drop down this week. And, we, and again, disappointing. But it's also going to land on Disney+, Plus. I believe. I think they've announced... Uh, a date for that. So I still think there's an audience to be found in the Eternals. And of course, when it ties into the rest of the MCU, which of course it will, then I think there will be a lot of, I don't know, going back and re-reviewing or a lot more respect for the Eternals that it's got so far. I, yeah. I don't think so, that all the problems with the box office are to do with the film. I think there is uh, uh, there has been right from the get-go of this project and uh, the, the world's been ready to give it a kicking. And I think, you know, Pixar had it when they reached one film that they stumbled over and, it, and um, audience was ready to kick Pixar into touch. And I think yeah. this is that for, for Marvel, I think, The Eternals, which doesn't deserve it. I, I, I've said before, it's flawed, but it doesn't deserve a lot of the pasting that it's got. And I think it's to do with uh, some of the issues that it deals with um, and some of the more liberal ideas within it, and and I think that's where it suffered. Anyway, yeah. what is the biggest box office film of the year, Andy? And I ask you because I already know, but our dear listeners do not. Well, we've mentioned a few times that um, the Chinese market is where the money's been this year, and up until recently, a Chinese film which has only been released in their own territory, Hi Mom, was the number one, but another one which has only been released in China has now taken that lead, and that's the Battle at Lake Changjin, which is now at a staggering 889 million. Wow. And climbing. And it's not only the biggest film of this year, it's the biggest film for China of all time. My goodness. It's absolutely phenomenal. And it just shows I me, mean, like we keep saying, the reason why films like Fast Nine and No Time to Die are in the top five of the, the box office for the year internationally is because of the Chinese market. They got releases to the Chinese market and they got lapped up by the Chinese market. So, yeah, the, the, the top five worldwide box office for this year, three of the films are Chinese only films. And people say, you you know, why why consider China as part of uh, part of your audience? Well, there you go. There yeah. you go. It is such a huge, huge market. Uh, even if you do relatively well in China you are yeah. guaranteed to pump your, your box office. And it just makes sense, you know. I mean, yes, there, there's a lot to debate about China, but they, they clearly have a, a market, and you can't, you can't turn down that market at all. 
Not at all. It's ridiculous to think like that. But hey, moving on. So that's the box office. What have we got news-wise, Andy? Let's start with Disney. So Disney are set to spend 33 billion US dollars on content next year. Holy moly. <laughs> I could make a billion films for that. Um, their annual report this year, the figure was revealed, which will also include streaming programming, broadcast programming and sports content. It's an increase of 8 billion on 2021's figures. And it's driven by plans to expand their direct-to-consumer streaming services such as Disney+, Plus, Hulu, and ESPN+. In addition, they also plan to release around 50 feature films to box office or streaming over the year. And the General Entertainment Division plans to produce or commission 60 unscripted series, 30 comedy shows, 25 dramas, 15 docuseries, 10 animated shows, and 5 TV movies. That's a lot of production. That must make Disney now the biggest producer in the world. Yes. Uh, close behind them is Warners and Discovery, who merged this past few months. And their merger is going to see that studio invest 20 billion next year on product. But when you consider that Disney now includes Marvel, Lucasfilm, Disney Pictures, Pixar, 20th Century Fox, Searchlight, ABC, National Geographic, FX, and more, it kind of makes sense that the 33 billion spread across all of those kind of like doesn't see if you ch split them into the chunks of which department's going to be taking what amount it wouldn't seem so huge but it is because disney owns and has snapped up so much other properties over the years and let's keep that in mind then when when people think about the disney brand disney is an umbrella company yeah. uh in which all these fit underneath it under the ownership of disney but to some extent each of the studios has their own identity. Yeah. Now, Disney pay for all of these and, and throw money into them. So um, there, there's a connection. But all of these entities are are, are separate companies under the umbrella yeah. company of Disney. And I think a lot of people get, you know, when, when Marvel moved to uh, to Disney, everybody went, oh, they're going to Disney-fy it. There'll be Marvel princesses and all that kind of thing, which all proved to be uh, hogwash in the end. Yeah. But it just goes to prove that, that Disney are, they're kind of good at cultivating these smaller studios. And, and Marvel is, is, is indeed just that, as is Pixar. Yeah. Uh, Fox has still got its own identity. It's just now owned by Disney. Yeah. Searchlight is still allowed to be Searchlight and still going to be seeking like the, the lower budget indie passion projects. This is one thing that like everyone expects that like oh Disney's bought up stuff and so they're going to interfere on it, but they don't. They buy it up because they see the business potential of making money by letting the creatives do the creative things in their way. They're, they're expanding their brand, but without interfering and forcing their brand on other people. Well, that's right, and and they've got they've got this major major distribution line through Disney Plus yeah. now, which is just going to reach even more people. It's it's a it's a fantastic business model. I, I would like to be part of the uh, Disney umbrella. Please count me in. <laughs> Can you imagine us, the film file, being part of the Disney brand? <laughs> it would be awesome. I mean, would we be able to criticise them as much? I'm not sure. But um, we don't criticise them that much, to be honest with you. We criticise everybody equally and fairly. Yeah. Anyone from Disney, if you're listening, you know, uh, we're open to ideas and suggestions. Get in touch. Um, moving on to Marvel, which is linking to Disney. Uh, Peyton Reed has confirmed... Confirmed that principal shooting has wrapped on Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which is well ahead of its 2023 release date. In the new film, we'll get to see Jonathan Majors in full Kang mode after seeing the variation of him in Loki. And 
that's about all that we know about the film at this point in time. It's going to be very exciting to see what happens. I, I think that like we won't find out much about what the whole stories are until like Doctor Strange has come out, because then yeah. we'll be bouncing into the next one. Everything feeds into the next thing. And Jeremy Renner has said that he's happy to stick around as Hawkeye for as long as the studio wants him. Oh, good. It appears he's having a lot of fun playing in the MCU world, and he's not going to be one of these snobby actors who decides that he's had enough and moves on. You know what? Um, if anybody would have said about moving on, I would have said Renner. And I also would have said Chris Hemsworth. Uh, and both are stuck around. Yeah. Well, Renner, when the when the first Avengers film was getting made, he was notable for being a bit miffed that his character was kind of sidelined as like a mindless yeah. villain and only given a heroic element towards the end. But he's grown to... He's, the character's grown. I mean, it's now got his own TV series, which we'll talk about later. And he's grown to embrace and love the development that his characters had ever since Age of Ultron when we got to see his family. Yes. And it was that aspect of giving him like some core core emotion to link him to the real world that he started to latch onto. I think he's a great character. I think he's a great actor. And I'm glad that he wants to stick around. And stick around you must because you'll be hearing our review of Hawkeye. Though I think we might have given the game away. Um, <laughs> talking of rapping filming... Uh, I also noticed Marvels has wrapped filming this week as well. Yep. So it's yet another one that we just have to wait until we start to get the seeds and it like details of what to expect as it comes through. We do know that Kamala Khan's character is going to be slightly different to the comic book version because yep. we've seen the stuff for the Miss Marvel series where instead of it being stretchy, Mr. Fantastic-esque kind of powers, it looks like a, 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 a Green Lantern kind of energy force that right. you can manipulate around her. I'm fine with it. I don't want all my characters in the MCU to be exactly the same as the ones in the comics. And to be fair, a lot of them aren't. Yeah, yeah, true, true. I, I, they are their own universe. You know, you've yeah. got you've got the choice now. It, this is closer to the Ultimates universe. I, having just gone back and read some of the Ultimate stuff. Yeah, which has that more grounded feel. Yeah, and cinematic. And cinematic. Uh, moving away from Marvel over to the other Disney brand, which is Star Wars. And Kathleen Kennedy has been looking at ways to continue the stories of the characters from the Skywalker saga. In her words, certainly those are not characters we're going to forget. They will live on, and those are conversations that are going on with the creative team as well. Now, which characters she wants to continue the stories of, it's unsure about at the moment. Maybe it's some side characters that were used in episodes 7, 8, and 9. Or maybe she plans a return to Ray or Finn and develop their characters even further. We don't know. But she she seems to be quite keen on spinning off stories with characters that people are familiar with. Interestingly enough, on, on Star Wars news, uh, it seems that in the next season of The Mandalorian, they are integrating some of the storyline from the now cancelled The Rangers of the New Republic series after, oh, what's the name of the actress? Uh, Gina Carano. Gina Carano, and she had those tweets that went out, which kind of went against everything that Disney was sort of promoting, you know, get vaccinated, yeah. don't have an insurrection, that kind of thing. <laughs> so rather than dump the storylines, they're going to integrate those into the next season of The Mandalorian. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, I wasn't convinced that it needed that spin-off anyway. Yeah, yeah, it did yeah, feel the, like... the characters were interesting side characters to use with The Mandalorian. Exactly my point, yeah. So keep them alongside The Mandalorian. And in the other um, Star Wars TV show, Kathleen Kennedy's been getting excited about the reunion of Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen on the Obi-Wan series. Um, as she said, the thing that was most exciting was being on set and watching the two of them get excited. They hadn't seen one another for a long time, 
I was surprised at just how incredibly emotional it was for each of them to find themselves back in these roles and just realising how important Star Wars was to each of them. It was the beginning of their careers. I think it's a bit rich for us to say that it was the beginning of Ewing McGregor's career. Yes, I mean, he it, had <laughs> had a 20-year career by that point, but, you know, we'll let it go on this particular point. But I get that it's the one that really thrust him into the spotlight for the US audience in particular. Yeah. He was well-known over in the UK because, you know, let's be honest, it was Shallow Grave and Trainspotting that put him on our radar. Yeah. I'm, I'm still not sold on the Obi-Wan series, but as with everything Star Wars, I look forward to giving it a shot. And no doubt talking about it on the show. And that's all we ask, Andy. That's all we ask. What I am sold on, though, is uh, June 2, which we know it got the green light and is expected to shoot next year for the late 2023 release. And Villeneuve has been speaking about things to expect. June 2 will adapt the second half of the Frank Herbert novel. And due to the nature of the story, some characters from part one aren't necessarily expected to feature in part two. Empire Magazine did an interview with the director asking if some would return anyway, some any fan favourites that it would return. To which Villeneuve replied, well, that's a major spoiler. As Timothy Chalamet kept saying, the book has been out there for 60 years. It's a very well-known story. But yes, some will reappear out of the dust. Part two will be such a cinematic treat. Making part one for me was just to set the table, you know, and to explain the cultures and the background of all the different planets and civilizations. And then to have that chance, now that everything is set, part two will be an amazing playground. It'll be so fun to do. Which hints that he's going to deviate slightly from the books by having some characters have more of an impact on the second half of the story. I'm intrigued. Yeah, and as, as was reported this week, it's past a $100 million mark. So there clearly is an audience. And I think once the sequel's out, uh, and if with a bit of clever marketing, run the both films back to back, and I think you've got uh, got another yeah. surefire hit. For all those people who were like, hey, wait a minute, this just finished halfway through a storyline, you know, now you're going to be, wait a minute, it's a much bigger film. I mean, all the people who complained that it, it's, it finished halfway through a storyline, did they do the same when Fellowship of the Ring came out and then The Two Towers? Or did they just accept that it was part of a big story? I think I think with that particular film, I'm not here to defend or detract from anything, but I do think that the way that Dune finished, it did it did finish a kind of halfway through a scene, to be honest, and, and halfway through a storyline. Well, we all expected it. It was it was a bold move, I think, to to yeah. just say, right, you're going to carry on watching this uh, by sticking around for the next movie. Well, we'll get to see in two years' time. One character from the book who was left out of part one with, that some fans got a bit uppity about is that of Fade Rother, who's play, who was played by Sting in the previous adaptation. Uh, Villeneuve confirmed that it was deliberate choice to leave him out of part one. Definitely, that's a choice I personally brought on. There was enough characters that were introduced in this first part, and it will be more elegant to keep Fade in for part two. It will be very definitely a very, very important character in the second part. And as someone who's read the book multiple times, I can kind of see why you didn't introduce him early on, because he'd have been introduced just to do nothing in yes. this first part. He doesn't get involved until the second part of the story anyway, yeah. really. Even even in the Lynch version, he just, he just stands around being glowering for the first half yeah. of the movie until... It's time to pay off. Yep. I, I suspect that we'll get to see a lot of development of that character. And that'll be where some of the newer scenes and some characters who were sidelined for the last half of the book might be brought into it film-wise to tell. Because he won't just bring him in just for the final confrontations. He'll want to give the character some growth. So I think we might get some flashbacks as well. But we'll see. Did you see the story this week of Doctor Who being a woman is to blame for young men turning to crime in the UK? According to... 
uh, a Tory MP from from our neck of the woods, in fact. Oh, yeah, this is a Tory MP, Nick Fletcher, who's spouting absolute gibberish nonsense like uh, most. Well, can I just say, you know, rich, white, privileged men with no grasp on reality have. He's up. He's clearly one of these sad little people who thinks that, you know, having a strong female character somehow detracts from a male presence in the world. Uh, yeah, he's come up with this whole theory that like the fact that we've got a female Doctor Who and the talking about making James Bond female, they're not talking about making James I Bond I don't think female. anyone's talked about making no James Bond No one spoke female. about that. That's just right wing hysteria. And all of the things that have changed to females... It's taking away these male presences for people to for boys to look up to. Yeah, you know, because we live in a world where there's no such character as Tony Stark or Steve Rogers or Bruce Banner or Star Lord or I mean, the list goes we on. Could, we could list. Can I just add into that Marcus Ratchford as well uh, to that list? Who's is, is probably Britain's best male role model non-fiction in the world right now <laughs> yeah uh, it, it's ridiculous just because there's been yeah an alien being who can transform has turned female that is not going to make people go rioting in the streets and to be honest with you if he's blaming doctor who for the rising crime levels is it four-year-olds who are doing these crime levels because she's only been the doctor for three years <laughs> yes, apparently before um, Jodie Whittaker took over as Doctor Who, there was actually a zero rating crime. So yeah, he has a, a point. <laughs> Utter nonsense. Utter yeah. nonsense. I thought I'd get that one in, but move on, Andy. Yes, let's let's move on. So um, Ronaldo Marcus Green, who directed King Richard, which I'll speak about later in the show, is set to make a biopic of Bob Marley for Paramount. He's currently working on the script alongside Zach Balin and Bob's son, Ziggy Marley who's produ- also producing it. The film will start in 1976 and will deal with the making of the album Exodus, which took place in the wake of an assassination attempt. I'm surprised that it's not been done already, to be honest. Yeah, it does seem like one of those... He's one of those iconic characters within like the music industry and also within culture that just seems to have been sidelined when it comes to making biopics. Yeah, it, it seems like a perfect, perfect story. and I'm, Until now, I've never realised that that it hasn't been tackled. Really, really interesting. Just linking with music as well, Netflix are working on a Gorillaz movie. The animated band created by Damon Albarn and Jamie Hewlett are going to be getting their own feature-length film. Albarn confirmed the news in an interview with Apple Music this week. I'm at Netflix because we're making a full-length Gorillaz film with Netflix. We're having a writing session in Malibu this afternoon. It's really exciting to do that. It's something we've been wanting to do for a long time. It's been through so many incarnations. This Gorillaz doing a movie, honestly. And yeah, as a fan of Gorillaz from when they started off, I, I, this has kind of been bubbling in the background for so long. They've always said that they, they could see like an idea for like doing like a TV series or like the Monkeys kind of TV series, yeah. but with Gorillaz. And they've never quite managed to get it together. But now Netflix funding... I'll get to see gorillas on screen and I'll be happy. I always like the idea of the gorillas more than I actually like the music. I liked a couple of the tracks, but I like the idea of them particularly more than, than than the songs that were produced. Anyway, a bit more news for you. Jurassic Park World Dominion prologue uh, stomped online. Five minutes of the beginning of the movie landed this week. Also, it was an interesting story that because of lack of a male dinosaur, that dinosaur crime has gone up. This is to do with role models. I mean, that those raptors are out of control because th- there's no male T-Rex around. That's right. To, to put them in order. <laughs> so anyway, they, they've uh, previewed five minutes online. And you know what? It looks really, really interesting stuff. Of course, it's going to look fantastic. Uh, where it goes, 
uh, for the rest of the movie, I know you're a little bit cautious as you've uh, seen the the rule of diminishing returns applied to the Jurassic Park. But the the first five minutes certainly do look uh, very impressive. I remain to be convinced, but I'm extremely sceptical on that franchise. Jurassic World did nothing for me. And as for the follow-up to it, Fallen Kingdom, oh, that it was It just a mess. fell for you, didn't it? It just fell. One of these days, you're going to get revenge on me for the deep dive suggestion this week by suggesting that we deep dive Fallen Kingdom. Ooh, let me, <laughs> let me muse on that one. <laughs> According to David Mitchell, The Matrix Resurrections isn't exactly a sequel. The writer who worked on the film with Alexander Herman and Lana Wachowski said this week, I saw the film in Berlin in September. It's really good. I cannot tell you what the film's about, but I could explain what it's not. It's certainly not yet one more sequel, but something autonomous that contains, however, the three Matrix movies that preceded it in an ingenious way. It's a very beautiful and weird creation. And it also achieves a couple of things that we do not see in action films, meaning it subverts the rules of blockbusters. Now, we saw in the trailer that there was a recast Morpheus, but also the original characters of Neo and Trinity, who were dead in the series, are back, as well as the scenes from the earlier films playing out inside the new world framework. So it looks to be an interesting, challenging sort of sci-fi, much like the original was. Because everyone kind of forgets that, you know, The Matrix is now considered so typical of, like, the sci-fi action genre. But when it came out, it broke a lot of conventions of the sci-fi action genre. So I'm glad that this one looks to be breaking even more conventions and walls and barriers down. Well, if you can't do it in The Matrix, where can you do it? Because... You know, you're, you're dealing with the, the possibilities of the imagination within the Matrix. So you can find clever, and I'm, it sounds like they have done, and intriguing ways to be able to build into how to do the Matrix entirely differently. And, and, and as for me, anything's going to be better than, than two and three. So count me in and count me ready and waiting. Well, we'll get to find out in less than a month. One more bit of news for you from me. Blade Runner, Ridley Scott says a live action TV series is in the works. Have you seen that, Andy? I did. I, I caught this quick news. Uh, we don't know a lot of details about the story elements that it's going to be focusing on, but just a return to that world. And to be honest, I think that a TV series will give it a chance to really flesh out that dystopian future world setting that we've come to like love and embrace. There's a lot of like mystery of that whole setting and depending on what timeline they do it in, whether it's like the time of the first Blade Runner or whether it's 2049 or after. There's a lot to be told about corporate entities and, you know, how the world, how the world was pushed to such a need that it needed to go to colonies. Absolutely. Interesting setting. Scope for so many sci-fi noir stories. I'm on board. I'm on board for it. And and as we know, Blade Runner's never really ever set the box office on fire, but people are intrigued about about the world that uh, Sir Ridley first set up and, and we followed on a few years ago. Yeah. So there, there is interest there. And, and the way that TV is, is going, I mean, look at, I don't know if you've watched it, Foundation yet on, on Apple, where you can do something now with scope on TV. You can do size and not feel diminished in any way by having TV, TV production values. So uh, I'm in and I think it's, there, there have been other areas, comics and books and, and even video games which have explored Blade Runner. So yeah, yeah, definitely count me in. Uh, Matt Reeves' Batman has an official synopsis. Oh, I saw that, but I didn't read it. So I'm going to let you tell me about uh, it. You'll put dramatic voice on for this. Two years of stalking. You could do it in a, in a world, in a world voice. <laughs> in a world where, anyway, no, I, I won't be able to keep that up. So um, 
Two years of stalking the streets as the Batman, striking fear into hearts of criminals, has led Bruce Wayne deep into the shadows of Gotham City, with only a few trusted allies, Alfred Pennyworth, Lieutenant James Gordon, amongst the city's corrupt network of officials and high-profile figures. The lone vigilante has established himself as the sole embodiment of vengeance amongst his fellow citizens. When a killer targets Gotham's elite with a series of sadistic machinations, a trail of cryptic clues sends the world's greatest detective on an investigation into the underworld, where he encounters characters such as Selina Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, Oswald Cobblepot, a.k.a. The Penguin, Carmine Falcone, and Edward Nashton, a.k.a. The Riddler. As the evidence begins to lead closer to home and the scale of the perpetrator's plans becomes clear, Batman must forge new relationships, unmask the culprit, and bring justice to the abuse of power and corruption that has long plagued Gotham City. Oh, it sounds gritty. Do you know where you had me on, Andy, and that? The. <laughs> the world's greatest detective, because that's yeah. the element that's been missing for me. Yeah, I mean, th- this is what we were hoping for with uh, Matt Reeves's take on it, is that we'll finally get to see. We- we- we've said before that you saw touches of it with Michael Keaton's one in the first Batman film, but it was only touches. But I want it to be a proper, like, clues and breadcrumbs leading him through that he uncovers rather than accidentally bumps into someone in the street, fights them, and they say, oh, you need to go and take this person, which is what Batman kind of became. Kind of became. Yeah. And sticking with DC, the League of Super Pets trailer landed. Yes, it was fun, wasn't it? It was indeed. Crypto the Super Dog and Superman, inseparable best friends, sharing the same superpowers and fighting crime side by side. But Superman and the rest of the Justice League are kidnapped, and Crypto convinces a ragtag shelter pack Ace the Hound, PB the Potbelly Pig, Merton the Turtle, and Chip the Squiddle to master their own newfound powers and help him rescue the superheroes. It looks fun. It looks like a blast. Yeah, Dwayne Johnson playing Dwayne Johnson playing a dog. Um, Kevin Hart playing Kevin Hart playing a dog. <laughs> Kate McKinnon's voice are spotted in there. John Krasinski is in there. He's playing Superman, yeah. Yeah, there's some great names. Ben Schwartz, Keanu Reeves, Thomas Middleditch, Mark Maron. Great names all providing voices for this, but it just looks like good family fun with that little edge of like adult touches of humour at and times. Beautifully animated as well. Oh, I love the stylings of it, yeah. Absolutely marvellous. So that's one to look forward to trailer-wise. If you're not checked it out, go and check out the trailer. It's it, it's a it's a treat. I wonder where it'll land in the UK. Well, Sky. Fingers crossed we'll get a limited cinema release. I think it could do cinema. We'll see. But we'll see. We'll see. I think it'll be a great Saturday morning cinema shows. Let's round off with two two pieces of news that made me really excited this week. So first of all, we've mentioned it before, the two-part Musketeers adaptation that was going into production. Well, it's now released the casting and the release dates. Path A have targeted April the 5th, 2023 and December the 13th, 2023 for the two parts, which is going to be a new adaptation of the Alexander Dumas novel. And those who are regular listeners to the show will know that when we did a deep dive into the old 1970s Three Musketeers film, we've got a lot of love for it here. We have, we have. And so I've been looking and keeping an eye out for this. They're going to be titled The Three Musketeers, D'Artagnan, and The Three Musketeers, Milady. And both will be directed by Martin Bublon, who gave us films such as Eiffel. Eva Green is playing Milady. Okay. Francois Civil as D'Artagnan. Vincent Cassell, oh, the majestic Vincent Cassell as Athos. P.O. Marmai as Porthos, Romain Duris as Aramis, Louis Garel as King Louis Thirteenth, Vicky Cripps as Queen Anne, Eric Roof as Cardinal Richelieu, Jacob Fortune Lloyd as the Duke of Buckingham. That's good casting. Yeah. Lina Coudry as Constance, Mark Barber as Captain de Treville, Patrick Mill as Count de Chalet, and Julian Frieson as Gaston de France. Some great names across Count there. Count me great roles. in. 
Um, in addition, as we previously reported, there's a new character of Hannibal, played by Ralph Amuso, who's going to feature. And that character is inspired by the first actual historical black musketeer that okay. has never never been given any spotlight. So a new character for the novel, but for the reasons of, well, this person was an actual person. Let's bring them into it. The shooting of the two films will be back to back this next summer. So 2023, two Musketeers films for me to be treated to. Woo, yeah. And finally, this got me very excited. Hammer Films has closed a deal with UK-based network distributing and the pairing is going to form the new Hammer Studios Limited. Yes, I saw this. A whole new entity to control and manage the vast library of Hammer content. The aim is not only to invest into restoring and releasing old classic films, but also setting up new productions from both old and new IP. I have grown with a love for Hammer. You know, they vanished off the scene for quite a few decades. Then they came back. Uh, Women, the Woman in Black with Daniel Radcliffe was yeah. a Hammer production with the new Hammer Studios, but they didn't really pan out much after there, and they struggled since. So I'm glad that they're getting a whole new branding, a whole new chance to bring their classic content, but also get some classic new stories up on screen. Yeah, I mean, they did come back, and they did, interestingly enough, they did Let Me In, which was, yeah. uh, it was a Hammer film. And they had a film out last year called, I think it was The Lodge, which was a Hammer film. So they have kept going, even though they're not being particularly prolific. However, from what I'd heard after, over all these years is that there was some kind of uh, contractual reason why they weren't doing Dracula, why they weren't following on from the Christopher Lee films or even remaking some of their own IP. Uh, but it seems from that press announcement that they've managed to overcome that and, and now they've got all their ducks back in into uh, under the Hammer label now, which was yeah. which seemed to be the problem before. So there, there are a couple of Hammer films I would love absolutely love to see remade one of them being the devil rides out which i think is a fantastic movie i, I was going to suggest that one myself really it is because it's so darn it's good isn't it such a good film yeah and i think it, it could really work with a new adaptation of it yeah oh let's hope yeah. so i mean i think characters like the father shandor who could have a have their own franchise would would work absolutely perfectly so yeah count me in i've been waiting for this news oh for a long long time and that is this week's The News. Still with us? Still enjoying the film file? Of course you are. And if you're a fan and you've not subscribed, then our question is why. But you should do so. Head over to your favourite podcast platform, find the film file, hit the subscribe button. Remember to like it and leave a pleasant review because, you know, we're pleasant kind of people. If you want to know more about the film file, then you can do so by simply doing just this. You can head over to Twitter and follow us at Filmfile UK. You can pop over to Instagram, TikTok or Facebook, Filmfile UK. Or you can email us with thoughts, suggestions, top five films of all time, top films of 2021. Any films that you've seen in 2021. Problems. Any films that you can't remember the title of and you, you just know a few little clues like an actor or what it was generally about. Fire any emails our way. I just want to read stuff. Just send us stuff to read and we'll answer whatever we can on the upcoming shows. Podcast at filmfile.uk. Get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And by the way, hello, Utah. Hi, Utah. Over the last few weeks, you may or may have not detected me rant about certain films. And one film that I seem to rant about more than anything else is 2014 Australian psychological horror film directed by Jennifer Kent. And that is The Babadook. Do I hate it? Do I loathe it? 
Do I actually like it? You're going to find out. Where'd you get this? On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. <laughs> a rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. This is what he wears on top. He's funny, don't you think? See him in your room at night. Mum, does it hurt the boy? Mum, does it live under the bed? Mum? Mummy! The film stars Essie Davis, Noah Wiseman and Daniel Henshaw and it's based on Kent's 2005 short film, Monster. The film premiered at the 2014 Sundance Film Festival and garnered plenty of attention and critical acclaim in the US and Europe, but in its native Australia wasn't actually a success, but only found some limited success in art house cinemas. And the story is Sam, a young boy, is convinced of a monster's presence in the family home due to certain disturbing visions. His erratic behaviour concerns his single mother, Amelia, who spirals into a state of paranoia. Is it a ghost story? Is it a psychological thriller? Is it a piece of pants? Well, Andy, you've had a chance to watch it, and I have a chance to either defend or deconstruct The Babadook. I'm, I can't wait, because <laughs> you know that we picked up on this film because I had a two-minute-long rant <laughs> about The Babadook. So. Andy, go for it. Right. So I've not I'd not seen the Babadook, but I'd heard so many things about it, positive or negative. It seems that no one who I knew could agree with anyone else on this one. And your rants over the recent weeks made it clear that I had to see this film and we had to talk about it. Let's just quickly give some background to it. It was a low budget production. It cost two million to make. And when I watched it, I didn't know what to expect. And you can tell that it's a cheap production. It looks like a TV movie rather than a cinematic movie. But in doing so, it smartly avoids the tropes of the genre quite well. There's no forced jump scares. There's no orchestra throughout telling us how to be afraid. Instead, it's a very low-key approach to presentation, playing as a drama with supernatural and psychological elements. And there's the mystery of, like, throughout as to whether this Babadook that is haunting this house and threatening to possess the family is real or whether she's just going mad and losing her sense of like grip on reality because she's feeling the strain of being a lone parent after losing her husband a few years ago. Of course, it's a horror, but it plays very differently to how I expect horrors to play out. It explores various themes and can be interpreted in different ways. And if I was to talk about how I interpreted it, I saw this as an analysis of the breakdown of the mind through long-term depression. But someone who I know saw it, as, saw it as the pressures of raising a seemingly autistic child. Someone else that I know who wrote a review on um, Letterboxd thought that it was a reflection on the state and the lack of care given to single parents in the wake of trauma. So there's a lot of like deeper meanings that you can draw from this film. And what I thought was great is it doesn't force what the meaning is. It doesn't actually pay off by telling you what it's supposed to be representing. It's, it, it could just be seen on the surface level as the tale of a house possessed with a malevolent spirit that plagues the occupants and attempts to possess one. That, for me, makes it an interesting film. And the representation of the monster in this, the sketchy and surreal aspect, probably due to the low budget having to keep it very simple, 
works a charm. I love that it's not overly glossy. I love that it's not overly crafted. I love that it's dirty. I love that it's a bit cheap around the edges. But the origin of the Babadook is never made clear. Is it a dark echo from the back of Amelia's psyche? Is it malevolent presence attached to the house? Is it a manifestation from Sam himself? Or is it a spirit connected to a dead husband? A myriad of ways that you can tell that I actually got a lot from this film from all the different aspects that it didn't actually explain. I love the fact that it didn't explain stuff. It didn't pander to the lowest common denominator audience. And I quite enjoyed it. But with one caveat and... This is where <laughs> I understand your rant, because most of your rant was about the child. Yes. And the problem is the child actor. Anyone with kids knows how irritating they can naturally be when they're at that demanding age and will have experienced moments that you should be able to relate to when Amelia's getting frustrated with her child because like, mom, 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 because we've all been there. Yeah. I mean, not being called mom, obviously, but you, know, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. But the child actor, Noah Wiseman, simply cannot act. Yes. And as a result, his behaviours are so woefully presented presented and unconvincing, making some of the moments that should be chilling or disturbing quite laughable. And it's a shame because Essie Davis, as Amelia, is giving a fantastic performance of a mother at breaking point throughout. But she's crippled by a child actor that damages all the best moments on screen. At times when the kid's not on screen, they're the moments that the film drew me back in and they're the moments that let me analyse the structure, the presentation and the story which was going on in front of me. And it saved the film overall for me, making for a decently presented horror film. But it was let down by that one small six-year-old aspect that I, I don't think I can watch this film again because I grated my teeth almost to dust so many times when he was on screen. That's exactly the reason that threw me out of this film. What I do like about the film, and and I, I don't hate it, I, it's just, it's one of those films that, that annoys me for the reason that when people don't think of it as a horror film and try to write it off as, a, as an art film, which its intention is to be a horror film. It might be dark, it might be psychological, but hey, I've seen a lot of Roman Polanski films to know that deep and psychological can still mean a horror film. I think what I got kind of caught up in, and I'll deal with the cast issue later, is the fact that that people were, it was a bit Emperor's New Clothes, that people were saying this is the most terrifying film that you will ever see. This is is is, is redefined horror. No, it didn't. What it did was create a, a, a dark and unsettling story in a domestic setting that I liked. I love the design. Yeah. I love the idea of the Babadook itself. I love the idea that it is a character of the mind. All of those points I really, really enjoyed. I think Essie Davis, who I'd seen in other stuff, but he's absolutely fantastic in this and she dominates the screen. Uh, I, I think it was everything uh, around it, which almost when, when certain kind of critics dive all over a film, they have a tendency to decry other horror movies because it is at its yeah. heart of it, it, it. It's clever. It's well-written. It has some some interesting nuances in it it's very claustrophobic and i and i liked all that i like the edge of sanity stuff but there seems to be this this whitewashing of other kinds of horror film because we have seen enough horror films really know this is absolutely nothing unique yeah. uh, it, it takes a lots and lots of tropes and especially the ending and, and does something different with it but when certain art critics 
art movie critic, should I say, get involved and suddenly start going, well, this is this is genius. This is this isn't a horror film. This is psychological, a psychological thriller and start heaping tons and tons of praise on it. And then forgetting that actually it's really good, but it just fits into all the things that we tick about other horror movies, you know, claustrophobia, insanity. Uh, is there something in there? It doesn't mean something different. You know, I can look at Psycho. I can even look at, you know, The Exorcist and look at all these other films and go, there you go. Yeah. This is this is played with the genre. And it does. But to suddenly sort of say this is a piece of genius, uh, which it is, a, it's a, it has some parts of it are very, is, is a very, very good film. But we've seen those elements before. And I think my my anger with this film is aimed at those critics who have a tendency to come in and swan around in, in a in a genre that we've grown up in and know all the different elements of of, um, of horror movies, then to suddenly sort of, of giving it plaudits for being a reasonably good film uh, yeah. with a great cast or great, great lead, should I say, uh, and then to sort of deconstruct all the other horror movies that come out and sort of, it's that age old thing. Let's, let's uh, um, raise one film by decrying the rest around it. And and that's what I think annoyed me more so about the Babadook when it came out is it got all these plaudits, but kind of decried the rest of, of horror films as, as not being worthy. And I didn't think it was that good to, to be raised on, on this sort of pantheon of being one of the great horror films of our time. It's a good film, but it's not the greatest horror film of all time. It does have some some good horror. It has some couple of a uh, couple of jump scares in there. It's 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 got a genuinely moving story. And the second reason I hate it is the the, the thing that that you pointed out. That kid character is so annoying. Whether he was poorly directed, whether he was just a terrible acting choice, every time he's on screen, it's fingers down a chalkboard for me. That that performance is so overwrought that it just takes away any sense of threat because I don't yeah. believe in that character and I don't care. Ultimately, I don't care what happens to that child. It could be the first horror movie where a child is actually, you know, murdered blatantly on screen and, and we're all a lot happier for it. It just took away any sense of threat because as soon as that character came on screen and overacted in this this ridiculous manner, hey, the character could have been autistic or not, but it was never addressed. But the portrayal by the actor just takes away any tension. Uh, and I kind of dreaded every time that kid came back on screen because it, when I was enjoying the movie, oh, bang, here comes uh, uh, that kid again and just takes me completely out of the film. With his monotone, yelly voice. Yeah. I, and I mean, that's it. The, the, the kid character is supposed to be irritating because that's supposed to be one of the aspects of the film is that she's finding more and more irritation because he's at that demanding age. But it's the way that the act, the child actor presents it. That it's, oh, mummy, 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 I want this, I want this, I want that. It's, it's like a Dalek. Yes. And I'm, so, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it, it's if you're going to have a child in a film, at least find one who can, you know, convey a range, at least get a different range of voice, yes. not just emotions, but voice. It's not a great example of child acting. And uh, I'll be quite happy if I never see that child actor on screen again. Um, with regards to the whole like snobbery, and it is snobbery yeah. of some film critics towards horror. It's as though the look at like horror as a genre is cheap and it's throwaway and it's nonsense and Absolutely it's garbage point, and it's rot. It? But they're missing the point that much like sci-fi is a foundation which like societal stories can be told, you know, anything that can pressure society is told in a sci-fi stance and works well. Horror works well for telling personal journeys. It tells personal like 
issues and tackles it. You know, depression, anxieties, the stress of parenthood, all are tackled within horror framework, and this film uses all of them. All of them, horror, sci-fi, whatever, should not be just dismissed. And we've had this rant whenever we've spoken about directors who talk about superhero films not being good. Yeah, they're missing the point of them. They are foundations to tell other stories within. Horror is not throwaway. It's not disposable. Some of it is, yes. Some of it is really poorly made, yes. But it's a way to tell a story within a framework. And if you can tap into someone's fright response, once you're frightened watching a film, you are open to the interpretations of the ideas getting thrown at you. That's where horror works. You look at like recent work by like people like Ari Aster, who's managed to tap into horror. And, you know, people try to dismiss, like, say, Midsummer's not a horror. No, Midsummer is very much a horror. Yes. It's a huge horror. But it tells interesting stories within the framework. So stop the snobbery towards it. Because all that you're doing is you're damaging the perception of the genre overall. Yeah, I, I, I you know, and that's that's the um, that's my usual rant against this film. I, I have nothing against the film. What I and I have a rant is is that um, the way that it was it was built up by critics, not just to, to give the film plaudits. Yeah, uh, and and for the majority of the film, the plaudits are absolutely deserved. What it is is it tears down the rest of the genre to give it those plaudits by trying to say that everything about horror is, is cheap and then somebody comes along and does something different. It's not that different. As I said, Polanski, I'm looking at you. You did this 40-odd yeah. years ago. Yeah. So uh, do I hate it? No, I don't. I hate one central performance, which knocks me out of the film every time. I think the design of the Babadook is almost Tim Burton-esque, and I really like yeah. it. I like the suburban feel to it i like the fact that it's claustrophobic i love the lead in it i think she's amazing i like some of the ideas in it i just don't think it is the start of a brand new horror horror conventions because i've seen it before and and i thought it was i thought it was good did i think it was amazing no that one performance by that child actor completely ruins the film for me what i do find interesting is that even though it like you said it didn't perform well in its native australia but it did well internationally so like it well and truly made profit but kent owns the full rights to it and has no intentions of sequelizing it or franchising it no it was a complete story it didn't need to be does yeah. it it's not that kind of film so even though like some people have clamored saying like oh i'd like to see the babadook as like attack someone else it's like but that would break the whole thing that we don't understand the full origins of the babadook it's personal to those characters in this film we don't need it to be a franchise and that's this week's deep dive and we'll be back with another deep dive next week as to what it is well you'll just have to be as surprised as i will be so now it's time for this week's reviews and as ever andy has been doing the heavy lifting which i haven't done andy you're going to surprise the world by saying that you've seen something as a sky movies original that i do believe that you may have enjoyed I had to take a bit of a breath there because, well, I think we're getting into territory that uh, I wasn't comfortable with. But Andy, tell us about the films that you've seen, in particular, one that's going to shock a nation. So let's start with a shock. Let's start with A Boy Called Christmas. Now, I'm familiar with the book. I'm not familiar with the film. And as I don't have Sky anymore, tell me about it. You may find this hard to believe, but long ago, nobody knew about Christmas. It started with a boy called Nicholas and a summons from the king. I'm asking you to go to the very edges of our kingdom and bring back a spark of magic to give us hope. I'm going to Elfhelm to find the elves, Mika. To bring some new hopes to the world. Such a fool. Everyone knows there is no such thing as elves. 
You ready, old friend? Born ready. You can talk. And I can fly as well. Nah, no, just kidding. No mice can fly. That would be absurd. So, those three dreaded words. A Sky original. Yes, A Boy Called Christmas is a Sky original. And combined with another thing that generally gets me agitated, festive films. The wealth, or should I say dirge, of festive films spawned each year by the studios to cash in on this month when everyone goes sappy for saccharin generally results in a wave of sub-average generic films that are packed with mawkish charm. On occasion, there's surprises. In recent years, Netflix has given us films such as Klaus, as well as the Kurt Russell starring Christmas Chronicles. But usually, they follow the same trite formula, generally leaving me feeling nauseous by the end, bar and indeed humbug. So, approaching this film, I was ready to carve it to pieces, ready to hate it, and ready to be the Grinch. And I tried. I really did. I desperately spent the first five to ten minutes trying not to be swept up by the charms. Oh, look, a child actor in a lead role. This is going to... Oh, hang on a minute. He's actually pretty good. Then, oh, a talking mouse. How very... Oh, is that Stephen Merchant? Oh, oh, that's quite funny. I quite like that, that mouse. And at every step, my plans to have another Sky original to dump on were being scuppered. You see, A Boy Called Christmas may be treading very familiar ground with its alternate myth of the Santa origin, but I'll be darned if it wasn't done in a jolly pleasant manner. The film is presented in a Princess Bride manner, as Maggie Smith is an aunt who's watching the kids, an aunt who the kids feel is just old and grumpy, and she begins to read a bedtime tale to them, the tale of the boy called Christmas. The story adventure is presented in a very never-ending story manner, all flights of fancy and charm, but with edges of darkness like any good fairy tale should have. The tale is adventurous, charming, and funny, taking in a mystical land where elves and humans have been at odds with each other for quite a long time. And the cast of British names that round out the cast include the ever-excellent Maggie Smith, Jim Broadbent, whose short early scene provides some genuine belly laughs, Toby Jones, Stephen Merchant, as I've mentioned before, and Sally Hawkins. Other names pop up in able support, including Kristen Wiig and Joel Fry. But it's the young Henry Lawful as Nicholas, the boy of the title, who really shines in this. He avoids the usual weaker aspects that we tend to see from the child cast in Christmas films, and it's utterly engaging. All of these names are handled well on screen by a tight and funny script and able direction from Gil Keenan, who certainly knows how to mix dark and light, having worked on Monster House one of my favourite animations of all time. For the film to put me in the festive spirit, it takes quite a lot, but this film worked its magic, and whilst it's still let down by being quite formulaic, it does make for a great slice of family entertainment this season. What's your next one? My next one is Encanto. I've been a big fan of the recent Disney outings. I thought Maya and the Last Dragon was absolutely superb. It felt like a Disney film, and, and I mean that in the fact that when you look at Pixar, there's a very distinctive style to Pixar films. But I thought the recent release of Disney animated films have, have felt very Disney-ish, but with uh, with something new and unique to say in their storytelling. And, and they really are, for me, breaking boundaries. Am I going to be disappointed with this one? Because I am looking forward to it. You ready? Let's go! Morning, casita. Our family was blessed with magic. Dangerous. 
Disney's Encanto. Disney's latest animated offering is a fantastic magical musical tale of a family and their magical gifts. The Madrigals live in the mountains of Colombia in a magical home called Encanto. Every child in the family has been blessed with a unique gift, super strength, weather control, shape-shifting, etc., that they help use to help the local community. All that is, except one, Mirabel. However, when something starts going wrong with the magic and the house starts to crack, is it because of Mirabel, or is she the only one who can save them? Enchanting and fun family adventure, Encanto is packed with charm, laughs, and musical numbers to tap your feet to. All songs are written by Lin-Manuel Miranda and are packed with the usual techniques he brings to his work. And when coupled with the fun and sometimes very creative visual animations, makes for an absolute treat. The setting and Latino focus for the film may be new for Disney, but the beats and turns of the tale are very familiar, tapping into that core theme of family that so many other animations have done before it. The voice cast is drawn from within the Latino community, with many familiar voices lending well to their parts. Stephanie Beatrice in particular, making a striking impression as Mirabel, the central character, and each voice chosen matches their character well, with John Leguizamo playing the very eccentric Bruno and making a stunning impression, Bruno having the power to see the future and gone slightly unhinged through having this ability. Encanto is a great family offering from the House of Mouse this season, and it may have resulted in something causing irritation to my eyes that made them start to drip moisture. I'm not crying. You are. Great film. (laughs) Well worth checking out. And my next one is King Richard. I wrote me a 78-page plan for their whole career before they was even born. Yeah, baby, yeah! (laughs) These girls so great, how come I've never heard of them? They're from Compton. It's okay. They're just not used to seeing good-looking peoples like us. She's nervous. Make a step up. Maybe she ought to take a few more steps up. Just get someplace safe. I think you might just have the next Michael Jordan. Oh, no, brother man. I got me the next, too. This next step you got to take, you're not going to just be representing you. You're going to be representing every little black girl on Earth. They're not going to let you doubt. How could you? This world ain't never had no respect for Richard Williams, but they're going to respect y'all. You walk out there with your head up. You are a champion, and the whole world knows it. King Richard is a film that's been getting a lot of praise, and it stars Will Smith as Richard Williams, the father of international tennis stars Venus and Serena Williams. It focuses on the years where he tried to get his girls from the ghetto into the tournament championships, showing that not only was it not a rich man's sport, but anyone could achieve. The film chronicles that journey and how Richard's plan, as set out as he had it, sometimes risked getting in the way. So how is Will Smith's performance? I've, I've heard down the grapevine that it's a strong performance. And, and for a character who isn't, who, who historically wasn't particularly sympathetic, that he manages to bring some amount of, well, I wouldn't say sympathy, but empathy to the role. Now, Will Smith is on top form as Richard Williams demonstrating once again why he's such a big name to attach to a film, despite some serious missteps of the past decade. Possibly his strongest role since Ali, the character allows Smith to shed some of his usual shticks and likability, to play someone a little rough around the edges, but with the right endgame targeted. It's also important to recognise the marvellous contribution that Sanaya Sidney and Demi Singleton give as Venus and Serena. The two young stars excel in their parts, Sydney as Venus offering the strongest moments alongside Smith. Support around the trio comes from names such as John Bernathal, Dylan McDermott, 
and Anjuana Ellis. And they're ably handled by director Ronaldo Marcus Green, who gets the pacing, setup and presentation just right. I'm not a lover of tennis and generally shy away from most sports dramas, but this film captivated me, me with its approach. It broke the trends of sports biopics and is more heartfelt drama about a family and what one man is willing to do to make a better life for his own. The fact that it's actually based on real events makes it even more powerful and compelling. Absolutely one of the strongest films of the year and well worth seeing. So, sticking with reviews, both Andy and I have seen, and we'll make this a, a regular thing as we've been doing with all the MCU TV stuff, Andy and I have both seen the first two episodes of Hawkeye, new to Disney+. Plus. Can I tell you a secret? I'm working with an Avenger. Can I speak to your manager? Didn't realize you were supposed to bring guns. It's almost Christmas. I can't go home until I fix this. Should we be worried? I'll be home for Christmas. I promise. Ah. Sorry, Santa. We're out of regular arrows. Oh my God, trick arrows? We're saving the holidays. Marvel Studios Hawkeye. First two so two episodes of the new MCU series, Hawkeye, landed on Wednesday. And a brief rundown, in while in New York for the Christmas holidays, Clint Barton, again played by Jeremy Renner, begrudgingly works with aspiring hero Kate Bishop, played with charm and zest by Haley Stanfield, to confront old enemies from his past as Ronin, who you saw in Avengers Endgame, and return home in time to spend Christmas with his family. So what you've got here is the MCU. You've got a bit of Shane Black. You've got a bit of Die Hard. You've got a bit of Hallmark Family Christmas. And you've got, in the first two episodes anyway, a whole lot of fun. Andy, did you enjoy the first two episodes as much as I did? I thoroughly enjoyed it. I love that it's foundation laying the first two episodes. It's to introduce Haley Stanfield's character, showing that she was saved by Hawkeye during the Battle of New York. And so was inspired to be like him. And coming from a rich family, her rich mother, Eleanor, played by Vera Farmiga. What a great actress to see. Like Mark Oh, MCU. she's fantastic. Um, you didn't see uh, The Many Saints of, of Newark where she was just singularly uh, scene stealing. She was just just brilliant. I mean, I think she's been great in everything from The Departed yeah. uh, onwards in, in everything she's done. But yeah, absolutely uh, Great to see her as an as a, an addition to the MCU. But Eleanor paid for Kate Bishop's uh, private education and uh, as well as martial arts academy, archery schools, fencing lessons, and always taking pride in her daughter excelling in every one of these. But now that she's grown up, Kate is getting herself into trouble, frequently showing off her abilities, and trouble catches up with her after she's mistaken for Hawkeye or Ronin, and ends up under the protection of the man himself. And what I loved about it was that Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye is still plagued by the loss of Natasha. He still blames himself. Yeah. And so he's reluctantly still a hero. And he's recognised on the streets and he's getting free meals in restaurants. But you can see that he doesn't want that attention because he wants to shy away from it. And this is him being thrust back into taking a heroic lead by put, taking someone under his wing 
someone who looks up to him and sees him as a mentor. The Tracksuit Mafia had me in stitches. They are brilliant. Certainly are, bro. (laughs) Uh, So so much humour comes from them, even though they're they're supposed to be quite menacing at the same time. And the whole, like, aspect of, like, the blurring of, like, what Ronin was and what Hawkeye was and whether that aspect of his, like, Clint Barton's personality is something he still wants to have a part of or not is all bubbling under the surface. There's a nice buddy cop relationship starting between the two by the end of the second episode. That's kind of my Shane Blackism and that of the Christmas setting. What What I enjoyed about it, and I... And we said earlier that I never thought Renard would want to continue with the role, but it seems like he's having a blast. Is is he? He paints Clint Barton as a very sympathetically yeah. a, a, a retired Avenger, which again we've not seen. And in Falcon and Winter Soldier, we saw how do superheroes make a living, and this is playing with what's happened when after you've left the band, almost kind of wants to put the past to bed and just spend Christmas with his family when, when this comes up. And there's a, there's a world weariness to him. And again, that, that made me think of, uh, of, of Shane Black with Last Boy Scout and that kind of thing. Uh, and of course, Kate Bishop is enthusiastic and she's determined to prove herself as a hero and, and clearly edging towards uh, Hawkeye's replacement for whatever the next generation of Avengers is going to be. And it kind of looks like we're going down the Young Avengers. But I, I just thought it was fun. I thought it looked great. I thought all the money was on the screen. And again, it it's cinematic. It really is the cinematic universe. It doesn't matter that it's on TV. If you've got a big enough telly, yeah. especially if you've got a 4K TV, it just shone through. It's fun. It's a great character study, perhaps more so than I thought it would have been. It's got a, a somberness, and yet it's got a sharp wit to it. And it, and it hits the target for me. Pun intended. <laughs> I love the aspect of Clint's family life, that he's been an Avenger and he's done international things and he's been into space. And so it's so casual how he talks to his wife about how things coming up. And like when he's saying, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be a bit delayed getting home. And it's just like it, it, he's late from his nine to five job to get back. It's not like yes. he's, he's going off like, oh, well, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to do the getting like fake kidnapped routine again. And she's just like, oh, well, um, anyway, if you can make it by tomorrow. And the casual nature shows how his personal life is accepting of the fact that, oh, well, he puts himself in danger on a regular basis. It just, it's just something that happens. I love it. Absolutely love it. Can't wait to see this pan out. Yeah, there's a nice kind of laid back quality in this, this earthiness that we're seeing. Uh, in, in some ways that we saw with, with shows like Daredevil and Luke Cage. And so the threats and, and the mythos aren't, aren't huge. They are street level. And that doesn't take away any of the charm, any of the heart of the series. And the relationship between Haley Stanfield's Kate Bishop and, and Clint Barton yeah. will grow. And it's just, it's just a nice, straightforward story that you can, you can watch without being a massive fan of yeah. the MCU, I think. There's enough action. There's enough heart. There's in, enough empathy with the characters. To, to make it absolutely work for them. Can't wait for next week. And next week, we'll be telling you our thoughts on episode three, hopefully continuing down the same vein. And also landed on Disney Plus this week is something that I'm two episodes in. You've watched the first one, and that's Beatles yes. Get Back, which is stunning. Yeah. It's a stunning piece of work. Whether you, and I've seen this crop up a couple of times over this week, where music critics in particular, rather than TV critics, have been asked, should we put the Beatles to bed? And, and, to which if I'd been on one of those pundits and they'd asked me this week, would be you don't put works of art no. to bed. You wouldn't think of putting Shakespeare. You wouldn't think of discussing Shakespeare any any further or uh, the Mona Lisa or any other piece of, of, yeah. of culture 
And that's what the Beatles are. For anybody who just thinks of them in terms of a band, and yes, of course they were, this is uh, a piece of defining culture for a generation uh, that continues to define. We hope to get 14 songs. From director Peter Jackson, experience the three-part event. Oh, yeah! And none of us has had the idea of what the show's going to be. Featuring footage that's never been seen. When I'm up against the wall, Paul, you'll find I'm on my best. Until now. If you all can't get it together, that's really very sad. It's got to be the best, because you are the Beatles. The Beatles get back. I was impressed by the scale of it. Uh, Having remembered, and I've only seen Let It Be a couple of times, uh, I remember this sort of, and I do remember there being a dourness to it. But what Peter Jackson has done is almost give the, the, the movie, the documentary, a ticking clock. Yeah. So for those who don't know, it's set in January 19, 1969. The Beatles gathered at Twickenham Film Studios to rehearse for an album, a live show, and, and subsequently being documented in, in a very, very short run. And so it has a ticking clock. Are they going to write enough songs? Are they going to be able to uh, produce an album and get this gig on? And while the band is clearly coming to the end of this fantastic ride now, let it be painted that as the imploding. But this shows another side mm. to it. This shows the Beatles being able to be uh, uh, musical collaborators, to have wit and to have charm. Yes, they're coming to the end of the uh, end of the road, and and that's that's there. But that ticking bomb really gives it a, a more defined uh, storyline than I than I remember. Let it be being that. Yeah, let it be kind of presented it as like they were just. A- at each other's throats and arguing all the way through. But then it like let it be ended with the rooftop concert. And yes. in that rooftop concert, you could see the energy and the friendship that they had. And it kind of contrasted and felt a bit like this is uneven. They were falling apart just there. How come the they're not falling apart here? But this gives the context to it that it's not necessarily that they were at each other's throats. It's that musically and creatively they were all finding different feet. George in particular had grown. He, he'd gone from being like the person at the back of the band, the, the youngest one who just follows the lead, to getting his own voice. And this is the moment that you see it. And the episode one ends with him basically getting frustrated at not actually getting his own voice and not feeling listened to. And that was the famous moment when he quit the band. Yeah. And then episode by the end of episode two, you'll get to see them all with the energy and the vibrancy and the fun and the banter again. And it shows that they were friends. I mean, we know that George had like went on to make some great. I mean, I I personally think that after post Beatles, he had the strongest output. That's interesting. He's my favourite Beatle as a result. Lennon had the most create like interesting output. He had the most like political and like movement focused output. But George, I thought creatively, was fantastic once he was broken free from the Beatles. But this is that this is a documentary of so much footage that shows you the real reason why they went their own separate ways. And it's not that they stopped being friends. It's not that they were trying to kill each other while recording. It was simply that they were all creatively different by that point in their lives. I, I think you've, you've hit upon something quite interesting there, Andy. At that point in their lives, John and Ringo were 28. Yep. Paul was 26. George had just turned 25. And they were, they'd been bestowed as, as, as being legendary for uh, and being iconic in a way that very few musicians, Elvis probably, uh, had ever been granted that kind of, of identity. And, you know, and they they generally deal with it 
by becoming internalized and, and keeping it at the fore of them. It's when it's when bits of the outside world in, in interfere or growing up interferes that that changes. And I think it's I, I think you're right. I think it isn't about the deconstruction of a band. I think it's about the reconstruction of, of four individuals yeah. who are finding their own voices in the world. It has to be said that the restoration work done on the footage is marvelous. It looks great. The sound engineering is fantastic on it. And the use of some moments where there wasn't actually any visuals, but they've like they've got the recorded sound to give some extra elements of story. Brilliant. It really does pan it out. I'm looking forward to watching part three because we're getting close to the rooftop concerts and I can't wait to see the remastered footage for that. I yeah. cannot wait because yeah. that always looked great anyway and I had a power. I'm looking forward to this final part of it. Beatles Get Back. It's not just one for fans of Beatles either. If you are interested in music in general, it's worth watching to see the creative process. Because one thing that stood Absolutely. out for me is that there's a moment when Paul just start on the second episode, when Paul just starts riffing as he's trying to come up with an idea. And you see over a few minutes how that forms the basis of Get Back. And it's just, you see that like the, you don't have your song lyrics written out in advance. You make things up as you go along. And that's how they worked to get their most creative stuff. They just jammed, riffed, Instead of lyrics, they just were until a word came into my eyes. But he was a loner, loner. And then go back. Mr. No, Jojo was a man. And that's how they lyricized all their tracks. Absolutely brilliant. It's a great insight into the musical creative process. And I'm fascinated, not just as a fan of the Beatles, but just a fan of how things are created. Ultimately, because that's what this series is. It's a tribute, not just to the Beatles, but to the power of songwriting, the power uh, of great musicianship and the creative process. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to sticking around. It's taking its time. It moves to its own pace, yep. which I quite enjoy. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. So over this next week, Coming out at cinemas, you've got Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. And there's also some um, seasonal schmaltz with Boxing Day. Uh, over on Netflix, The Power of the Dog lands this week. Lost in Space Season 3, which will be the final season, also lands. And Shaun the Sheep, The Flight Before Christmas is their festive treat this year. Over on Now TV and Sky, Godzilla vs. Kong lands. So you can see two monsters smash themselves for this December season. And over on Amazon, another festive, I say treat but I'm a bit sceptical, white as snow. And on Disney+, Plus, I spoke out a few weeks ago, The Last Jewel lands this week, as well as the brand new animated adventure, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. So there's a lot to see across all the platforms this week. Which ones will I pick to talk about next week? You'll have to wait. Lost in Space. I'm calling it now because I can't <laughs> wait to uh, see Lost in Space. I get the feeling that right. might be my neat thing next week. That's about it for this week. As ever, it's been a pleasure to bring you this show. But before we go, as we always do, we'll tell you about our neat thing, which is to say something that we have either seen, watched, heard, read, played, you name it, as long as we've enjoyed it. We think it's pretty neat then it's our neat thing. Andy, you have a neat thing for this week? I do. And this was a neat thing that was skipped over last week for the reasons that we spoke about last week. And that is Discovery Season 4. Now, okay. you'll know that Paramount decided it was going to be pulled from Netflix internationally and you had to wait until next year when Paramount Plus rolls out. Well, Paramount, after last weekend, realised the error of their ways and they realised that they've upset a worldwide fan community. And so Discovery Season 4 is streaming on Pluto TV on Friday nights and Saturday nights at 9pm. Wait, hang, whoa, back up one, one doggone <laughs> minute there. 
Pluto TV, did you say? Yes, uh, which means that you have to tune in on that streaming service at the times. So if you're free on Friday nights at 9pm or Saturday nights at 9pm, you can sit and watch Discovery. But it's also, the episodes for this season are available on Amazon and other purchasers to buy each episode £2.49 for the HD ones or £1.89 in SD. So there are ways to see them legitimately in the UK. And has it been any good? I've seen the first episode. The new season blasted into action. It's an action-packed episode with a setup very reminiscent of classic Trek. They said that they were going to do more episodic kind of adventures this season. And it's, it's hits the ground running with this one. Starts off with a crossed understanding with a planet that the Federation wished to extend an offer to. But the main thrust of this tale is the attempt to rescue a damaged space station, which results in action, peril and conflict. Some of it on board the Discovery, where the Federation president is watching and commenting on Captain Burnham's methods. The end of the episode, we get our first glimpse of the main threat for the season. But I'm hoping that we will continue to get episodes like this one, which work as one shots whilst the core arc plays out in the background. It was fun. I'm completely on board for this new Federation's growth and get to see how the new Federation is crafted and build its relationships with planets that fell out of favour with the Federation over time. I think the problem that Discovery's had, as I think from season one, and I know there was a lot of internal issues with it, it didn't know what kind of a series it wanted to be. It didn't know where it wanted to go that would make it unique until last season where they time jumped into the future uh, and there was a start of a brand new Federation. And that was season one for me. That's where it kicked off. That's when it found the kind of show it is, the kind of identity it should have had. It found its DNA. Yeah. It almost should have been that from from the get-go. I think that was a bold idea. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think they tackled it. Uh, and I just realized that the downside of this new Paramount deal is that we're not going to get Strange New Worlds. Nope. That's going to go to Paramount Plus, and we won't get that on Netflix. And that's the series that I'm really, really really looking forward to it. I've kind of waited all my life for this series. I've always been fascinated by the Star Trek that we nearly got but didn't get. Yeah, Hopefully, the, if Paramount Plus hasn't rolled out in the UK by that point, that Paramount will continue to do where you can buy it each week, episode by episode, if you wish to. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with paying £2.49 per episode in HD because I then own that episode and I can revisit it and rewatch it as many times as I want. So, well done to Paramount for listening to your fans, but you shouldn't have made that mistake in the first place. But for those fans out there who've been waiting, you can now get on Discovery Season 4 and enjoy it. Okay, my neat thing takes us back to Hawkeye. So a lot of this season of Hawkeye is based on the Matt Fraction, David Ager run. I, and I went back and re reread the books, which introduced uh, the relationship with Kate Bishop, which introduced uh, uh, Lucky the Pizza Dog, introduced the Tracksuit Mafia, and introduced a compelling take on Clint Barton, who up until that point had just been the Avenger who was a bit like the Green Arrow. It makes the character of Hawkeye and Clint Barton wonderfully compelling in a way that he'd never been told before. Just like the uh, the TV series, it's very much based on the streets and has an earthiness to it. The art is unique and wonderful. Matt Fraction's got just a, a great, kind of hipster writing style which he applies all the way through and makes it particularly knowing in places but always makes it just a, a darn good pleasure to read the books take hawkeye it was often shall we say underutilized and especially as we saw at the beginning of the mcu and shows he's one of marvel's most charming and lovable characters his actions throughout the book are a, a depiction of what 
a street level hero does when they're not on the clock and this is kind of how the how the series works and and subsequently the tv series works as well it leads to bouts of action some fun some misadventure as well as adventure uh some intricacies it's just a darn good read that i felt absolutely refreshed reading again i remember loving it when it came out and was always hoped that if they did a hawkeye tv series this is what they did and yes this is what they did. Uh, fantastic. And it's good to see that Matt Fraction gets a nod as a consulting producer on yeah. the series and just brings us back to that point that, you know, if this is based on a book, then the the creative should be credited and paid for it as well. No matter how much we love the MCU or, or the DC movies or any of those, these creators need to be credited and paid for it because without this book and the subsequent other books, you wouldn't have the fantastic movies that we're getting now. We've often said we are living in wonderful times, but these creators need to be recognized and potentially paid for it as well. Yeah. So that's my neat thing. And that is the, the first book, uh, My Life as a Weapon. Uh, pick it up. You'll absolutely love it. And if you've not watched the series, it's a great in before you watch the series. So that's it, Andy. I'll, I'll see you uh, next week. We've just looked out of the window, both of us, and see that it's snowing. I've got a whole... John Carpenter's the thing going off right now, so I'm going to have to go and deal with that. I've got the beard for John Carpenter's the thing, so I have to deal with this. <laughs> so I'll see you then, but if uh, you don't come back by Tuesday, I'm getting Clapton. <laughs>